So this past week, um, a video began circulating around the internet that you may or may not have seen. I have found myself um, getting increasingly deeper into the world of Twitter in the recent months. I don't know, I've had a Twitter account for a decade or longer, but I've never really had interest, but for some reason I'm I'm in Twitter these days. I off Facebook almost entirely, thanks be to God. There is hope for you if you're still stuck there, um, but no judgment here. Um, but a video is, has been circulating and is receiving millions and millions of views. It is of an undercover, it's an undercover video released by an, a group called Project Veritas. You may have heard of them or not. And it's a video of a man named Jordan Walker, who is a high-level executive of the pharmaceutical company Pfizer. And in the video, he is captured making the claims that um, the company has been mutating the COVID-19 virus in order to develop new vaccines for it. Now, maybe that doesn't sound like a big deal to you. To me, it, it seems, well, kind of shocking because essentially what he's saying is that a, a major pharmaceutical company is conducting what seems to me at least like gain-of-function type of research in order to make money. If we can tweak the virus and make it a continual problem, then we can we'll make money off the, the vaccine. Um, now, look, I'm not bringing this up this morning. I know that anytime you talk about things like this, there's all sorts of like political undercurrent to it. That's not my interest here. You know me. I never, I never make political statements from the pulpit, and I never will. It's not my heart. Um, and I don't bring it up this morning to give credibility to Project Veritas or to discredit Project Veritas. I mean, depending on who you ask, um, you get a, a whole wide range of opinion on, on this group and other groups like them from, you know, this is just some sort of, sort of fringe activist group that does uh, shady stuff to this is, you know, journalism in its purest form. You really can, depending on who you ask, that's, that's who people think that they are. And my point in bringing this up this morning is that you and I live in a time when it is legitimately hard to know who to believe and who not to believe on just about everything. There's no shortage of voices out there. There's no shortage of opinions. You and I have unlimited 24-7 access to whatever commentary, perspective, opinion, or take that you could ever ask for or want. It's right there at our fingertips. Can we trust the mainstream media to be truthful and objective? I don't answer that. I know probably the 99.9% .9 of you would answer the same way to that question. Okay, so if, if the answer then is well, perhaps no. Well, then, who do you turn to for news? I mean, that's the question, isn't it? Where, where do we go for facts? Where do we go for objectivity? Where do we go for truth? Now, I've seen some of the places that good Christian people have been turning to for their source of information and news and truth. And I have to say, well, maybe not you, but they have swung, I mean, so far in another direction. I wonder, is, is that where we need to go. I mean, is, is some guy in his basement any more capable of giving you truth and objectivity and facts than, you know, the talking media heads on the 24-7 mainstream news cycle? I mean, it's, it's a situation that we find ourselves in, and it's hard. It's hard to know who to believe, who to trust, who to listen to anymore. Maybe it's not hard for you. It's, it's hard for me. I'll just be honest with you. It's, it's hard. In all of history, Information has never been more readily accessible to humankind, yet the age that you and I live in is not just an information age, it is also a disinformation age. 
What is news? What is fake news? It may not be a problem for you, but as a, as a, a pastor, as a father, it's a problem for me. Now look, before I get anyone too riled up here, I want to shift gears and I want to introduce uh, the sermon series that you see uh, on the graphic there on the screen behind me. For the next four Sundays, which would include today, so four, four sermons, uh, three after this morning, we're going to be spending time in the book of Jude. Now maybe you don't know much about the book of Jude. The Jude is the shortest uh, book in the New Testament. It's right there at the end, right before the book of Revelation. Uh, if, you're, if you have a Bible, if you grabbed a guest Bible, we're going to be on page 988 here in a moment. And you'll see when you turn to Jude how brief it is. We're talking barely a page and a half in, in most Bibles, maybe even a page, depending on the size of the font that you have in your Bibles. It's the shortest book of the Bible, and in some ways, it's the most peculiar. It's, it's unique. Some people, like Martin Luther, for example, and others like him in history, uh, would discredit the uniqueness by saying it's little more than just a, a copy of Second Peter. And yes, there are similarities, absolutely. You can tell that there's influence, there's similarities, but um, I, I think that over time it has been shown that is, that is a misguided take. I hope that that's not your take on Jude, that it's not worth reading, because if, you've re- if you're reading through your New Testament, you read Second Peter, and then you're ready to just hop over to Revelation. I hope that's not your heart. I don't think it is, but just in case it is, let, let, me, uh, let me discourage you from thinking that way. Others are discomforted by the fact that Jude, at a couple points in his letter, quotes sources that are extra-biblical. They are non-biblical sources that he quotes in his letter. And so some people are discomforted by that. But um, if, that's, if you're hoping that that's something we're going to spend our time or the next four weeks diving into, you're going to be disappointed. Uh, that, that type of issue is better reserved for perhaps like a Bible study context. And who knows, maybe one of these days... Um, you know, we'll have a Bible study from Jude and we'll dive into that issue more, more deeply. I think Jude has something to say for the church today in this age of disinformation. He was writing to a church in his day, somewhere around 65, 70 AD, somewhere there within the first generation of the Christian church. He was writing to a, a church that, that had been infiltrated by people who were peddling fake news under the guise of good news. That's a no small deal, isn't it? Fake news under the guise of good news. Now, you and I might not be able to get to the bottom of the latest you know, political scandal or the truth behind a particular conspiracy theory, but you and I must be certain about the greater truths of God that come from his word, and form the very basis of our faith. There has to be somewhere that you and I can go to and be confident in the truth. Jude helps us to see that, and Jude will help us to understand how to do that. So let's turn to Jude. I'm going to introduce him to you. In fact, um, actually, I'm going to let him introduce himself to you. So if you want to turn there, um, we're going to look right here in the first verse. I'm just going to read the first half of it because we're going to let Jude speak for himself. He writes, this letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, as we go through the New Testament, we can only find um, one Jude in the New Testament who has a brother named James. And that's not James the the apostle. Um, We're talking about James, the brother of Jesus. And so uh, these two references in the New Testament make it clear that uh, Jude and James 
along with Joseph and Simon, if you were to go to Mark chapter 6 and look at what Mark says there about the family of Jesus, you would see that these are the sons of Mary and Joseph. These are the younger half-brothers of Jesus of Nazareth. And it begs a very important question. Maybe you didn't think about that when I read uh, verse 1a a second ago, but hopefully you're thinking about it now. If it is true that, that Jude is the half-brother of Jesus himself, why doesn't he refer to this extraordinary family connection when he's introducing himself to his recipients? I mean, if I'm the brother of the Lord, maybe I want you to know that if I want you to listen to what I have to say. You would think there was a certain degree of credibility that would come with, you know, making clear his connection Hey, I know a guy. I know the guy. Maybe you should listen to what I have to say. And maybe, there, there's, maybe that would be a thing. Maybe that would be appropriate even if perhaps Jude was writing sort of a, you know, a, a historical biography of Jesus' family life. We, we want to know the inside scoop. I can't wait to pick Judas's brain one day in heaven. Jude's brain. He's also known by Judas. So if I say Judas on accident, I don't mean Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed the Lord. I'm talking about Jude, Jesus's brother. I can't wait to pick his brain one day because there's a lot of things about the, the childhood of Jesus that I would love to know about. I'm sure Jesus would tell me, but I don't know. It'd be fun to hear someone else's you know, perspective too. But Judas isn't writing as an historian. He's not writing as a biographer, as it were. He's writing as a Christian leader that is concerned for a church. And as such, his relationship to Jesus as his Lord is what matters most when it comes to his credentials. And I mention that because that is a theme that is going to return week after week after week in the coming weeks as we go through this letter. It doesn't matter that Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. It matters that he is a servant of Jesus. And there's a huge difference between the two. You see, Jude was always the younger half-brother of Jesus, but Jesus was not always Jude's Lord. There was a time in Jude's life when Jesus wasn't Lord at all. I mean, you remember from the Gospel of John back in chapter 7 and verse 5, John tells us that Jesus' Jesus's brothers were counted among his antagonizers. Now, those of you with a brother, can I get an amen in here? <laughs> there are no greater antagonizers in all this world than my two older brothers. With the possible exception of my eldest son, he's right up there with them. <laughs> That's right. Here's looking at you. Jesus' brothers were his antagonizers. Because as John says there in verse 5, even his own brothers didn't believe in him. And Jude would have been one of those brothers. But something happened. Something happened in his life, something happened in James' life, and something presumably happened in the lives of Joseph and Simon that changed forever their perspective of Jesus, their orientation towards Jesus, their relationship to Jesus. And you and I both know that to be what? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And they went from being antagonizers to this brother of theirs to seeing him as Lord. He's not just a man. He is a man, fully man. We, we were raised. We were in the same home. We went through all the same stuff together. We watched him mature and go from a child to a teen to a young man to an adult. We watched it happen. He's a man just like you and I, but more. 
He's the God-man. And that is something that has to be seen, not just with your physical eyes. You and I, none of us in here are eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. No, it's something that has to be seen with the eyes of faith. That you believe the testimony about him is true. And that belief transforms your life. And that happened in Jude's life. When he said yes to the truth, something happened that led him to move from antagonizer to confessor, a confessor of faith, converted and regenerated. And as I think about that, and as I imagine just the sort, this, this whole dynamic, this family dynamic of you know, Mary and Joseph in this home, however long Joseph was with them, we, you know, it's, there, we've talked about this before, there's a strong likelihood that Joseph would have died a little younger, that Mary, by the time of Jesus' ministry, was a widow. Um, but at some point, there's this family, this family dynamic, and these boys and, and sisters, and, and in the mix of it, at, at, the, at the top, is, in terms of age, is Jesus. And you just... As I think about that and I imagine what that dynamic would be like, it brings to me a really important point, at least for our sake this morning, concerning Jude. Because despite his advantageous proximity to the Lord, Jude could very easily have become someone like many of you in here might know in your life. That is, someone who was brought up close to the faith, and yet themselves never came to believe. You know the type. I mean, do we have a nice crowd in here this morning? I dare say there might be some of, maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe that's your life. Maybe you were raised in the church. Maybe you have a, a believing spouse. But for some reason, it just never connected with you. It never clicked. There are people who are so close, just like Jude was, to truth and life and the very meaning of your existence and yet are so far away. People who are brought up in Christian homes and married to godly Christian spouses have great Christian friends. People who are blessed with advantageous exposure and proximity to truth and yet never get it. Or they got it, but they never kept it. It's tragic to me. It's tragic to me because there's people the world round who are just helplessly lost in the darkness of unknowing. There are still people in the world that have not heard the name of Jesus once in their life. And they're lost in the darkness of unknowing and yet there's people all around us here today that are bathing in the light of the truth. They're just, it's, they're saturated with it. It's everywhere around them. This constant invitation to, to, to receive it and let it come into their lives and transform their lives and give them meaning and purpose and hope and love and joy and all the things that the gospel does in a person's life. And yet they are entrenched in a different kind of darkness. It is not the darkness of unknowing. It is the darkness of of disbelief. And that is a sad, tragic, lamentable situation, one that Jude could have been the very ambassador of. He could have been the spokesperson of this, having been raised in the, in the very home of the Lord, 
And yet he was only ever an, an antagonizer until one day he gave his life. He finally saw Jesus as he really was and became Jude, a slave to him. And I like in the parath- almost a parenthetical statement, and a brother of James. <laughs> slave to him, brother to him. Now, what is his purpose in writing this, this letter? You, and I know this, this, it's introductory, it's, uh, it's biographical, it sort of gets, you know, gets, you, gets you into the, the, the mind and life and heart of Jude, and you're probably saying, okay, this is great. What about you know, the reason he wrote? And we're getting to that. But listen, nothing here is purely introductory. I promise you, this will come back later. This will come back later. It matters. There's a reason he begins this way, and he's going somewhere, and it's something that you and I need to hear. But what in the beginning of his letter here does he say is his purpose in writing? Well, he has an exhortation to make. He has something he wants urgently for these recipients. He wants them to do something. You can find it there in verse 3. If you look at verse 3 with me, he says, Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now... I find that I must write about something else. Urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. When I was in college and seminary, I had at least four years, maybe five years of biblical Greek. That's between eight and 12 semesters of it. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of study in the original language. Um, and, and despite the fact, I am by no means a, a self-professed expert or biblical scholar when it comes to Koine biblical you know, Greek. It's funny, my, my first Greek text, the t- I still have it in my office. If everyone ever wants to borrow a Greek text, I know you, you won't. But the invitation's there in case you ever do. The, the first textbook I ever had as a sophomore, I think, in college was, was called Basics of Biblical Greek. That makes sense. It's the basics, the starting point. But do you know what's funny? I think my second year textbook, the title was, It's Still Greek to Me. And I have to tell you, it's still Greek to me. Okay, so I'm not trying to impress anybody or claim to be something that I'm not. When I tell you that sometimes when I'm studying and preparing whether it's in a quiet time or preparing to teach or preparing to preach, sometimes in my limited capacity as someone who can read and understand the original language, sometimes I come across a word that really catches my attention. And it's usually one of those words that's sort of like a, a compound word. It's, it's uh, something that you find oftentimes in, in biblical Greek. It's, I, I call it like a Frankenstein word. It's a word where a bunch of little parts of, of words or meanings kind of are cobbled together to form one great big long word that says something very specific. And that's something that we find here in this verse that I just read to you, verse 3. It's that Greek word, and I'm going to tell it to you, and I'm going to let you say it back so you can all feel really smart that you learned a Greek word today. But it's like six syllables long, so listen closely. Epigen- all right. Epigenizomai. There we go. Epigenizomai. Say that. Epigenizomai. Say it one more time. All right. You are now... Expert Greek scholars. Epigonizomai. It's the word that the NLT translates defend. I urge you to do that. But because this word has been tweaked and built and constructed in such a way 
to make a point, it means, oh, it means more than just generically defend something. It means to stand over something and to defend it with all of your strength. To struggle for it. To contend for it. To exert great effort. To exercise all the capacity that you have, all of your strength, all of your might, all of your resources, all of your attention to stand firm. It's not a word suggesting that you exert the half-hearted effort you might put into trying to open the pickle jar. He's, he's talking more like the type of effort and exertion that goes into training for a decathlon. Or to be a soldier that stands guard at the risk of his own life. It's a strong word, friends. I urge you, I was going to write about this, but in light of the circumstances, which we'll get to next week, I urge you to defend the faith with all of your life. Now, you might be asking the next question, what faith? Defend my faith? When we think about defending faith, we usually think about giving a, a reason for my faith. And that's certainly something that we're, we're admonished to do. Going back to Peter, Peter said this, you know, be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. S you know, stand firm in, in why you believe, the reasons you believe, absolutely. But he's not talking about your own, Jude's not talking about your own personal subjective faith, as important as that is. No, he's saying the faith, defend the faith, that is, the truths of God revealed in Christ. Those things that form the very bedrock, the very foundation of Christianity, that orthodox apostolic message that has been received and believed by all the church throughout all the world, throughout all of church history. The faith, he says, a faith that has been entrusted to the church. And not just entrusted once upon a time, but once for all time. Did you see that? You know, that expression, once and for all, is only found one other time in the entire New Testament. Do you remember where it was? It's that place that deals with the sacrifice of Christ for your sins. Christ died once and for all. Once and for all. Meaning what? Well, it never has to happen again. <laughs> Thank you. That's why we don't come up here, you know, with bloody animal carcasses on our altar. Week after week after week after week after week. Because the blood of, of goats and bulls can never ultimately cleanse and atone for your sins. But there's the blood of one whose death once and for all has fulfilled that sacrificial system and abolished it forever. Once and for all time. Which means it is unique it is 
normative. It can never be repeated and needs not be repeated. And in the same way, we have been entrusted with the faith that is unique and normative and unalterable. Or at least it should be unalterable. And it sounds like that's the problem here. As we'll see next week and the next week, someone's in there tweaking things. Now look, the the faith absolutely needs to and has been defined more carefully over time. You know, we, we have, you know, we have a closed canon. Remember our study back in the fall on the word, and we talked about a canon. We have 66 books that are God's word, inspired and true from cover to cover, every word inspired and true. And we add nothing to it. There is no, there is no page or book after the, the end. And the curse lies on anyone who would add something to that. However, what it means needs definition and clarification. And that's exactly what the church has been doing for 2,000 years. Especially in those first few centuries. You remember those old, the conversations of those old heretics that sprung up in the first few centuries. A lot of them were, were good, well-meaning preachers who, who were just wrong. They didn't understand what it meant. They didn't understand that Jesus was fully man and fully God and what, that, what the implications of that were for our salvation. They didn't understand what it meant that Jesus was with God and yet was God. I thought God was one. Well, he is one, but he's three. What does that mean? The church took centuries to iron out and define meticulously and methodically what that meant and what its implications were. And and that work is critical. The faith must be defined. It must be clarified. But it must never be changed. That's what we're talking about. There's a difference. It must never be changed. Why? Well, because it's not ours to change. It doesn't belong to me. He's not talking about my faith. He's talking about a faith that has been handed to me. You heard it from Eli at the beginning of the service. Eli did such a great job. Is he, did he leave? Or is he still in here? All right. I don't want to draw attention to him other than to say, well done. It was really well, really well done. But you heard it from him there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What does Paul say there? Look at, I think uh, on the screen, we'll verse 1 here. Um, Paul says, let me remind you now, brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then and still stand firm in it today. It is this good news that saves you when or if or how. If you continue to believe the message I told you. All right, so right here Paul's saying your salvation depends upon standing firm in the message that I told you. You heard it from me. I came, I preached, I founded this church that was what saved you, and that's what will save you if you stand firm in it to the end. Unless, of course, you believe that something that was never true in the first place, which, which Paul will go on to give reasons why that's not the case. Of course it was true. It was true because it, it can be verified to be true, not just in history and apologetically, but even in the changed fruits of your lives. You are different now than you were before, and the only thing that, that can account for that is the veracity of what I told you about Jesus. But look at verse 3. 
I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Paul is not saying, I strolled into Corinth and began telling you my faith, my truth, you know, what I have to say about God, about salvation, about fill in the blank. No. Paul is saying, we're talking about Paul who wrote the majority of the New Testament, perhaps the greatest human mind to have ever graced this earth. And he's saying simply, it's not my, it's not my message. I'm just giving to you what was given to me. I'm, I'm a steward of something. I'm a caretaker of something. I'm a, I, I'm a disseminator of something that has been implanted into me from so, outside of me. And he says it as much there in chapter 11. When he says, I, uh, verse 23, I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. Man, Paul has nothing to say that Jesus hasn't told him. And he's saying, you received what I received. And in the same way, church, all around us, we hear people saying, that's your truth. Right? I'm sure you've heard that ad nauseum. Meaning you're ready to throw up when you hear it. That's your truth. I have my truth. You have your truth. He has his truth. She has her truth. And then we don't even know what he and she is anymore, apparently, as a culture. Everyone has their own truth. Paul comes along and says, I shared you God's truth. True truth. Something that doesn't depend on your, your emotions, your felt needs, your shared experience, your perspective. No, it finds its basis in the one who is ultimate reality. I didn't create it, Paul says. I simply shared it with you. Jude's not talking in here in the beginning of his letter about defending his faith, Paul's faith, their faith, our faith, but rather the faith. God's truth revealed in Christ, entrusted to the church to guard and to share. Now, if you um, have ever been through, <clears throat> excuse me, the membership class here at our church, and a lot of you have become members within the last decade that I've been teaching that class, so you, you may know, you know this already from your experience. Some of you became members, well, before I was even born, um, let alone before I moved here. Some of you have been members here since the dawn of time, it seems like, which is wonderful. But for those of you that have not joined or have not been through the membership class as I have taught it, this will be new to you. There's a, there's a, a point in the membership class, and by the way, um, I offer those as the need arises. So um, I know there's some who've indicated an interest in membership class, uh, you can do that on your communication card. You just say, interested in membership. And then I will get back to you or to Richard and we'll say, we acknowledge this, we see this, your name, we've got your name down. And when we get enough names, I'll teach class. It's that simple. So that's how it happens. But anyway, there's a part of our membership class where I dig into this a little, a little deeper and I make note of the fact that there is a difference between tradition, you know, with a capital T, and traditions, you know, little t. There's a difference. When I talk about the tradition of the church, 
I mean that universal, orthodox essentials to the faith. The apostolic tradition. That's what Jude is talking about here. The, the essentials of the true truth. Traditions, on the other hand, are just the various beliefs and practices that give shape to the individual subgroups within the church over time. We have traditions. They have traditions. They don't always agree or align, but you get it. We're not all you know, cut from the exact same carbon copy. And I think that's okay. It's okay to, to have differences in opinions. And, and so what I usually share is this old adage. You've probably heard it before. I may have even said it from the pulpit before. But I say this, and it's, again, I'm passing on to you what was handed to me. This isn't my idea. But it's the idea of, in essentials, unity. There has to be unity on the essentials within the church. In non-essentials, diversity. Things that aren't central and essential, there's room for different perspectives. But in all things, what? Charity or love. In all things, love. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. In all things, love. For example, I believe, according to the scriptures, that it is essential that a believer be baptized. Now, baptism is not a requirement to be saved. There's only one requirement to be saved, according to the scriptures. It is faith. And so, I tell people who come to me with these, these questions, I say, if you come to the altar this morning and you give your heart to Jesus and are converted and regenerated and confess him as Savior and Lord, you will be saved. And even if you have a heart attack 30 seconds later and die before I could dunk you in that little mobile bathtub we bring in here, you will still go to heaven, okay? You still go to heaven. Baptism is not a condition to be saved. But it is a requirement for those who are saved. Okay, we're commanded to baptize and be baptized. Okay, that, I would view that as an essential. But how? <laughs> a lot of you come from good Baptist backgrounds and you, you were steeped in this your whole life. How are you to be baptized? Are you to be sprinkled? Are you to be, is, it, is the water supposed to be poured over your head? Are you to be fully submerged all the way into the water? Does it have to be, could it be in a tub or a, a baptistry? Does it have to be in a river? Does it have to be in a pond? Various groups have formed their traditions around this. Is the how an essential? Well, some may say yes, but generally speaking, I would say no. What is essential is that you be baptized, Christian baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But how? Or what about when? Here's the one that always gets people riled up. Babies? Young children? Teenage? Adult? You see my point. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. In all things, love. We are commanded to observe the Lord's Supper. That is an essential. Well, what kind of bread are we supposed to use? Leavened bread? Unleavened bread? Walmart's French bread? 
or Food Lion's Italian bread. I tend to opt for Walmart's Italian bread. I think it just makes a better loaf to break apart in front of you. Wine or grape juice? Common cup? Fellowship cup. (laughs) Non-essentials, friends. And there has to be room to discuss and debate and disagree on non-essential things. Indeed, it it can even be hard to know when exactly something is an essential and when it is a non-essential. That's why there's always work to be done in determining these things. There needs to be dialogue. There needs to be discussion. There needs to be an open heart of what? Of charity towards one another as we sort through the the implications of, of truth. Otherwise, we run the risk of running the name of Jesus through the mud and bringing his church into disrepute. disrepute. And by the way, that's usually what ends up happening when we fall into what I call traditionalism. You know what that is, don't you? We've all experienced that in church before. It may not have been called it, but you know it when you see it. It's where we turn the secondary, non-essential things into the primary, essential things. And then we fight over it, as if eternity is hanging in the balance. I can't believe There's an electric guitar on this stage up here. And someone else might say, I can't believe you only have an organ in there. And then someone else comes along and says, I can't believe you have instruments in there. And we we create these lines that cannot be crossed. Over what? Some essential apostolic truth Preserved in the word and entrusted to the church? No. It's our stinking traditionalisms that always divide God's people. They have a 100% success rate at dividing the church. Because we've turned what is non-essential and what is secondary into what is essential and primary. And on and on and on it goes. You know, you know it when you see it. Look, Jude... <laughs> Jude's not talking about that here. He's not interested, at least in this letter, in the non-essentials. He's certainly not interested in the bickering that comes from our traditionalisms. He will talk about this later, but not yet. No, he's laser-focused on the very heart and core of it all. That which is foundational to the entire Christian enterprise I'm going to take a drink because I'm about to confess something to you. And I need all the strength I can get. I get everyone's attention when I say the word confession. I'm not much of a TV watcher, but I have become absolutely hooked on Gold Rush. You were expecting something like really drastic, weren't you? (laughs) There's a moral dilemma in the... No. Not that kind of confession time. <laughs> no. No, but seriously, though, I, I am obsessed with this show. I don't know why. It's fascinating to me. Um, I, I came to it by, you know, watching. I happened to see on the screen, like, an episode from the middle of the 10th season. So apparently there's, like, eons of this show that preceded my awareness of it. But I watched, like, 30 seconds of it, and I'm just, I'm hooked. And now I'm like most of the way through season 11 and just kind of binging it whenever I have the time. It's kind of pathetic, really. But you know, you know what I'm talking about when it comes to <laughs> binging shows that, 
that is pathetic. But anyway, if you don't know anything about the show, it's basically, it follows, you know, the, the story of, of various different personalities who are in Alaska or the Canadian Yukon, and they're, they're basically looking for gold. They're, they're, they're trying to find a, a piece of land that has gold-rich, you know, um, pay dirt, they call it, down beneath the, the overburden of the sediment that sits on top of it. And so they come in, and they, they prospect, and they find an area, and then they um, they huge machinery to, to scrape out all the overburden to then get down to that gold-rich pay dirt, and then they scoop it up, and they transport it in these giant dump trucks. It'd probably take two of them to fill up this whole room. And they take them down to what's called the wash plant. And the wash plant is basically a giant, like, 40 to 50-ton steel machine that has conveyor belts and, you know, uh, it may have, like, a barrel that turns or it may have a platform that shakes and a series of, of grates and, and over time, the pay dirt, which is full of dirt and sediment and boulders and rocks and pebbles and gold, like little flakes of gold, sifts all the way through the machine, comes down the water sluice, and at the very end, you get these mats that are just filled with gold, and they shake them out and wash them out, and then they have them in a jar. So if you've seen the show, you know I've just described the entire, it's like 10 years of television described in 30 seconds. It's the same thing every episode. And of course, there's the drama of the guys arguing and the machines are breaking and it's, you know, um, it's all fascinating. But um, the, the thing, though, that I'm, the reason I bring this up here is um, sometimes these wash plants, these giant 40 to 50 ton structures need to be moved. They're not stationary. They, they sometimes they sit on, on like pontoon bases. They're, they're, I've only seen one in the limited time of watching the show that has wheels. But usually they're just... A, a flat steel, a piece of steel or a pontoon base, and they basically, when they need to move them, they hook them up to like, they disassemble them as much as they can, then they hook them up to the biggest, strongest excavator they have, and they just drag it, like two miles per hour. Sometimes they have to drag, when they're going to a new site, it's like miles, it's like a whole day just to move these things. They drag them around everywhere, and it's this really like tedious, risky, you know, highly logistical thing that has to be done. But do you know what I have found as I've watched the show to be the, the single most important thing about moving the wash plant? Whenever they get to the destination point, that, they call them pads, usually the dirt and rock sort of structure that they build to put these things on, those have to be firm and level. They have to be. If they're not firm, what happens? Well, they, they, the structure collapses under its own weight. It, it can topple over. And not just does it need to be firm. But listen, every time they, they put a, a wash plant in place, they break out the level and they literally check how level it is. Because why? Because even if it's off just the littlest bit and it causes those, those sluice boxes to come off just a little bit, the water won't flow right, and what happens? The gold is lost. It's gone. And they'll run pay dirt load after pay dirt load, and it just, just washes right through. Friends, your entire life, the entire Christian enterprise is a massive superstructure with value worth far more than all the gold in the world. Your faith, your life, your eternity, it depends on the firm foundation of the faith entrusted to the church. 
That's why Jude's so concerned about it. I urge you, I urge you to defend it because everything is at stake. And if that foundation is corrupted, all oh, the entire enterprise risks collapse and the treasures lost. Jude set out to write a, what seemed like a nice, encouraging love letter to his church people concerning the great salvation of God shared among his people, but circumstances changed his, his purpose, and he was forced to alter course and exhort them to defend the faith. And I'm not convinced that the same thing isn't necessary today. There is a need right now for the faith to be defended from those who seek to undermine the foundation. And who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? Who's, who's supposed to do it? And I know the first thing that comes to your mind might have been, well, the guy standing up here. Well, that's why we pay him. No, it's, it's the work of the apologist. Oh, thank you for, for William Lane Craig. And guys like that that are just way smarter than I am. Thank God that they're out there defending the faith. It's, it's, it's the reserved for the, the scholar, the academic. It's the work of the university. That's the defenders of the faith. And Jude says, you want to bet? Look at verse 1 again. I didn't read the whole verse 1 the first time. I'm going to read the second half of it now. I am writing to all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to everybody that is a Christian. He's not writing to the pastor. He's not writing to the scholar. He's not writing to the apologist. He's not writing to the university. He's writing to the church. And he doesn't say, believe the faith. He doesn't say, spread the faith. He doesn't say, live out the faith in your day-to-day -day life. And by the way, every one of those things should be an exhortation to you, and, in, and they are throughout the New Testament. Absolutely. Believe it. Spread it. Live it out. Those things are absolutely essential and crucial and important. But Jude's message for us is today, contend for it. Fight for it. With all of your life, with all that you are, not for your own reputation, but for the reputation of God and his word. And so often we get those backwards, don't we? Oh, we get all fired up when someone crosses me and my reputation. Where are the people who are crossed when someone maligns God's word and God's reputation? We get those things backwards. And I wonder who will stand for the truth of God's word today? Who will stake their reputation? Who will stake their livelihoods? Their whole entire worldview and belief system? Who will stake their very identity upon the truth of God's word? Even when your spouse or your neighbor or whole churches or whole denominations forsake it and then they pressure you to follow them. Who will stand then? Well, I believe you are such a people. And I pray that you will continue to be such a people in an age full of competing voices, in a world that is increasingly hostile to the truth and to those who proclaim it, in a day when even so-called churches look less and less like houses of God and resemble more and more what Jude points out in verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah, 
those places which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion, those cities, he points out, were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. And as you scan around and look around, you see more and more places that have the name of Jesus on the sign, but the heart of the devil inside the building. But I'm confident that you are not people like that. I am confident that you are those who will stand for the truth of God's word today. And by the grace and power of God, you will continue to be such people. We live in an age of disinformation. But there is one place. There is one place you can go to for truth with a capital T. A place that the world and many who call themselves Christians will tell you cannot be trusted, but you and I know better. It is the word of God for the people of God. Let us together say, thanks be to God. Lord, we do give you thanks for the truth that has been faithfully. We did this back in the fall. We talked about the process, what that looked like, why we can be confident that what we have is your word. It's been faithfully transmitted and passed down from generation to generation. It didn't just fall out of the sky one day. You entrusted it to your people. And we are glad and willing recipients of it. Lord, help us to see with the same urgency as Jude that the, entire, the entirety of everything that we are and do as people of faith depends upon the foundation upon which it's built. And as we finally grasp the urgency and the importance of that and the eternal implications of that, Lord, may we respond accordingly in our standing for the truth. When every time we turn on the television, from the media talking heads to the, the sitcoms to right down to the commercials, everything is telling us otherwise. Everything is demanding that we, we change and modify and alter what we know is true or else suffer the consequences where we're constantly being intimidated and bullied into submission, into thinking like the world. Lord, help us to say no to that and yes to you. Give us, as Jude prays, more and more of your mercy, more and more of your peace, more and more of your love so that we can be the people you've called us to be. A church filled with servants of Jesus Christ who may not have all the answers, but they absolutely know where to turn. Help us to be a church like that and continue to be a church like that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.